0: You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JcastNetwork.org. Welcome, everybody, to Temple Bethel and to uh, Six Spectacular Scriptures. This is our third of uh, six courses or classes in this uh, series, and um, uh, it's really nice to be here to learn with you all, and uh, in particular, if this is your first time at Temple Bethel, or your first time in a while at Temple Bethel, it's especially sweet to be learning with you tonight, so I, I appreciate your being here. Um, I'd like to start with a prayer, if we could. Rebona shel majesty of space and time, we pray that you enable us to see your presence in our lives and to discover your reality in our world, where we are blinded to your role in the world, let us be able to open our eyes and see, where we are sleepwalking through life, let us be awake so that we can pay attention to the beauty and to the holiness and the dignity of everyone we encounter and everyone we meet, um, and uh, we pray that uh, our learning tonight enables us to fully see your presence in this world and in our lives, uh, and we say, Amen. It's not quite the tall speck. All right. So, um, the... Uh, that's really the essence of uh, the conversation tonight um, is about discovering God, um, finding God in the world, and dealing with that interaction and that encounter. Learning from that experience and figuring out what it means for us and what responsibilities, if any, it uh, levels upon us. What's the personality? What's our personal characteristics? What are our personal traits? That we bring to uh, our encounters with with God when we have them, um, and uh, how do uh, how do our personalities interact with and uh, and become shaped by um, our encounters when we have them with the divine? That's really the the essence of the questions that we're going to look at tonight with the text that we're on. And they're of special significance uh, to me. Um, I turn to this text. Um, really as a, as a text of calling and as a text of a first encounter with uh, with the divine. And uh, as opposed to other first encounters with God that the Torah talks about, and there are a few of them, um, this one I think is unique in that there's a uh, dialogue that we're going to see happening in this first encounter with the divine. And uh, it's meaningful for me because um, I grew up, um, I grew up, pretty involved Jewishly. I grew up going, uh, being involved in my uh, parents, thank you, my parents uh, uh, synagogue and um, went to a Jewish day school. You loved Judaism from an an early age, but uh, I would never, I never actually um, really had a a keen sense, a keen awareness of of God. And in fact, by the time that I was in middle school, um, I, you know, discovered or thought from my uh, classes from my teachers at uh, my Orthodox Jewish day school that God was kind of a joke, um, that, uh, that really it's something, you know, uh, only, only foolish people would uh, believe in, uh, that, uh, um, uh, that it's an incompatible to believe in God and, uh, and science at the same time, um, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, over the course of time, um, a lot changed in my life. Uh, I wouldn't say that I had any um, burning bush Experiences that Moses had, the, the encounters of God that I had were much more subtle than that, uh, and in a lot of ways, it required a, a reorientation to the question of God and a redefinition to me of, of what God was. Um, so, in my upbringing, um, the image of God that was constantly held forward is the you know the old man in the sky um, that uh, that you know that punishes and rewards. Um, that uh, that that is you know all powerful and control um, very I think limiting image of uh, of God. Uh, so during my time in uh, high school, I became very involved in USY and I uh, encountered a lot of really great teachers and mentors and rabbis there uh, who invited me to uh, to be able to see God through different kinds of lenses. Uh, among them, um, the the uh, Image of God that comes forth in community, um, that experiences in uh, in nature and appreciating the the majesty of the natural world could themselves also be um, encounters with the divine, um, and also cultivating my own um, internal voice, being able to hear um, the call inside of me was also an encounter with the divine. Um, being uh, feeling connected and uh, and and inspired in. Religious moments in prayer and in uh, study were also uh, revealed to me as potential um, encounters with the divine, and in a lot of ways, um, it, uh, it it opened my eyes to the possibility um, that, uh, um, that that God is really uh, how we define God. A lot of uh, of our experience of God is how we define God, um, and um, and and so therefore, um, a lot of people I think um, are turned off from. God in their lives because they're stuck in an image of God that uh, has been held out to them that may not be the authentic or, or the only authentic uh, image of God. Um, and so I frequently uh, have this conversation with uh, with people and... Um, I'm not the only rabbi uh, to, I didn't invent this phrase, but uh, you know, people will say, you know, I don't believe in God, and then I ask them to describe uh, the God that they don't believe in, and it turns out that I don't believe in that God either, and they're surprised to hear it. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, so, so part of this text to me is about um, uh, discovering God on one's own terms. Um, and that was very uh, meaningful to me in my, in my development, and the other piece of it that's Meaningful to me. And Moses, not only in this story, but in other stories in the Bible, is a model for me. Um, and I think for a lot of us who are involved in uh, roles of leadership in general, but especially in the Jewish community, uh, Moses is really the, supposed to be the paradigmatic Jewish leader, um, which is an interesting paradigm because he's uh, not necessarily the perfect leader. Um, he's, like we discussed with Jacob last week, he's very human, uh, and the Bible presents him in, I think, very uh, nuanced uh, terms, and uh, and so it, there's a lot to learn, both positive and negative, uh, from uh, from how Moses conducts himself and Moses interacts. And so I, I constantly found myself coming back to this story as I was thinking about um over when I was in high school, and then in college, and then in rabbinical school, what it meant to be a rabbi, what it meant to be a religious leader. This was one of the few stories that I would come back to and use as a reference point of, okay, what can I learn from how Moses uh, begins to encounter his role in this story? So, before I begin, before we start to look at the text, what can you tell me about Moses? Michael, yeah. One of the things, I mean, I've heard this. You know, what I was taught, Moses was not Charles Peston. He was an old guy, he was a shepherd,
1: he was a father, he was a husband. And, you know, a guy came to him and said, you're going to do all this stuff. And he basically said, no way. I'm this, you know, weak little guy. I can't do any of this stuff. You, you know, you picked the wrong guy. I mean, and, but he grew into to the door. Yeah, That's an interesting point, right? We, we meet Moses,
0: actually, he's uh, he's... He's advanced in years, at least in the text that we're going to look at, and that's not usually the impression you get of Moses in the story. You think of uh, Charles Peston, or if you've seen the cartoon The Prince of Egypt, which is a fantastic movie, um, although very steeped in midrash, and so not necessarily... loyal to the text itself but you get this image of a young man encountering God but Moses is actually in the story um, an old man I believe he's over 70 he might, I, I can't remember in Exodus chapter 4 it says his age he's either 70 or 80 either he's 70 and Aaron is 80 or, or, or something like that so um, so he's an old guy when we meet him um, and we will see when God says to him here's what I want you to do he says no 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 no. Right? I'm not the guy okay, so we're going to look at what he says there and what's behind what he's saying but that's really important
1: yeah well, um, he didn't speak very well, and uh, he spoke so slowly, and it was a difficulty that yeah. people basically fell asleep when he started
0: talking. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the second part might be a little bit of a midrash, uh, a projection of what, you know, uh, rabbis who are in Moses' image uh, have done to me and to us and to you tonight. Uh, but, uh, um, but, but for sure, uh, a few chapters later, after the text that we're looking at, Moses interacts with God again and again uh um, objects to his mission and says "Ani which is a very colorful phrase i mean, i'm of uncircumcised lips um there're plenty of midrashim uh that uh, that try to explore what it is that he means by month of uncircumcised lips one of my favorites is that um when he's a child uh pharaoh wants to know if he's a of royalty or if he's a, a slave child so he puts before him two piles a pile of gold and a pile of uh of hot coals and uh and uh moses is about to reach for the gold but an angel moves his hand uh and he grabs the coal and touches it to his uh, lips, and he becomes unable to speak. Um, I'm not sure why I really love that midrash, but it, uh, it's colorful. Yeah. This I thought of for myself. Probably all wrong, but
1: you know the idea. I was telling people in Paso the idea that Moses couldn't speak well, but spoke with people through a Uh I suppose, how do you how do you know Hebrew? Well, that, that presumes that the Israelites knew Hebrew. Remember, the Israelites,
0: depending on um, what uh, account you're reading, had been there for a couple of uh, a couple of centuries in Egypt. They were supposed to be there for 400 years, but they were really only there for like 235, if I remember the count correctly, right? But that means that there are at least several generations of Jews in Egypt who who uh, have been living there, and much like Jews in America. You know, we're in now the the you know third, fourth, fifth generation of Jews in America, and uh, how many Jews my age speak Yiddish anymore, right? And we uh, might know a little bit of Hebrew, but only so much as we get in religious school
1: for the most part, right? His formative years, they were more with the Egyptians than the
0: Jews. Well, we'll see uh, about that. There's, I think, partially that's true, but I think partially we make more of that than uh, than than maybe the reality. So let's we'll look at that. Uh, but yes, but that's, but it is something to know, right? Moses, the origin story of Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 2 is that he is, uh, um, his, his um, mother and father um, uh, defy Pharaoh's decree of killing the uh, male Israelite children, so they put him in a basket down the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter finds uh, this uh, crying baby in, the, in, in a basket. Um, if you read closely, she says, this is a Hebrew child, so it's not like she thinks, oh my gosh, I found another Egyptian child, and i got to save him, right? So she knows that it's a uh, Hebrew child that she has, um, and, uh, and, and names him Moses, and, and brings him up in, uh, in, in her home, uh, but hires um, a, uh, his mother as his wet nurse. Right? So he grows up uh, with, um, and, and according to several Midrashim, his sister was very present in the palace, so he grows up with his family, even though he's also um, in, in Egypt. But that's um, part of Moses' or- origin story, is that he spends um, his formative years um, in, uh, in, among Egyptian royalty. Uh, maybe not exclusively among Egyptian royalty, but among Egyptian royalty. Um, other, other things that we know about Moses. What else do we know about Moses?
1: Growing up, he didn't know he was a Hebrew. All right, so we no
0: don't Hebrew. know that for sure from the text, right? He, and we'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I think that, that we don't really know that tonight, but go ahead. As we say,
1: he didn't come to his Jewish identity or like to the Jewish people or the Jewish thought he was much older, but once he made the commitment, he was
0: Okay, all right, I so I'm going to uh, again say that. Um, that some of that is uh, what we know from the text, and some of that is maybe what we read into the text, okay? That it doesn't actually say, but is a plausible reading of the text. Not Maybe not the only one, yeah. Uh, he's the
1: youngest child, and like uh, all important people in Jewish history, he was the youngest. Interesting, okay. I, didn't,
0: I hadn't thought about that aspect of Moses, but yes, he was the youngest child. Right? And, uh, and, and again, you're right, like all... Uh, all Important people in biblical history, at least, he was the youngest. Yeah. He
1: spent a long time as a
0: shepherd. He spent time as a shepherd. Yeah, we'll see that tonight. Good. He was a shepherd. Okay. So, the first yes. To
1: say how the movie was a
0: trap. It doesn't. I mean, uh, it, it's. I don't want to sound offensive about this, but in a lot of ways. Because we're, you know, like sort of white Europeans were a little bit racist about this. Um, Egyptians and Hebrews probably looked noticeably different to the trained observer in ancient Egypt.
1: Nothing about
0: circumcision? Uh, Maybe, maybe. He was kept uh, as an infant by his parents. Um, although it's questionable uh, about whether or not he was circumcised. And in fact, there's a story a little bit later when Moses sets out back to Egypt where he's uh, confronted by an angel on the way. And it's uh, a little bit unclear whether whether the angel wants him to circumcise himself or wants him to circumcise his son. So we're not sure. It doesn't say in the text whether or not Moses is circumcised. And that's how um, Pharaoh's daughter knows it, it's certainly possible but I think that more likely Hebrew children and Egyptian children had a different look about them and uh, and, and she knew because of that um, their, noses. their noses were different yeah that's right um, he, he didn't he didn 't walk like this so she it was a dead giveaway um, okay. All right, let's look at the actual text, okay? We'll do it again in English, just in the interest of time, but we'll uh, probably refer back to the Hebrew from time to time. Now Moses, tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, drove the flock into the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay. The first thing that I want you to know about this text is that Contemporary biblical scholarship thinks that in the original version of the Torah, which they call the E-text, this was the first time we meet Moses. There's no origin story, right? There's no story of him being in a basket and being uh, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. No story of him striking the Israelites and then fleeing to Midian. Um, those stories were added later, Um Uh, possibly to, uh, help explain where Moses comes from, right? You know, it's it's, the obsession in Hollywood today is it's not enough to have a Spider Man movie, but you have to also have a Spider Man origin story, because we need to know where Spider Man comes from. (coughs) It's not enough to just see Spider Man swinging around fighting crime. A prequel, right? So, um, so the first thing I want us to know about this story is if we were in ancient Israel, um, hearing this story, This would be the only thing we would know about Moses, is that he was a shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep in Midian, and he was tending them, he drove them into the wilderness and ended up at a special mountain. Whether or not he knew that that was the mountain that he was going to, it doesn't really say. You can read the text either way, right? He says says he drove his flock there, okay? So maybe it was intentional. Maybe he was going specifically to that place. And that's that's a possibility that we can entertain here together, um, it's also quite possible that he happened upon a place that had special significance. Now, you'll notice also, just in, from my biblical scholar hat on for a second, that the mountain has two names, horev and the Mountain of God. There's actually a third name for that mountain. Anybody know what it is? Sinai. Good. Good. Sinai. Pearl got it. So, Sinai. Um, So, alternatively, in different places in the Torah, the same mountain is referred to by different names. In some texts, it's called Sinai. In some texts, especially uh, what we would call the the Deuteronomy texts, it's called Horeb. And in the E text, it's called the Mountain of God. So, biblical scholars think that this, where it says he came to Horeb, was added in a little bit later to make the text coherent with other narratives in the, in the whole of the Torah. Um, but again, we don't know if he just uh, accidentally ended up there or not. All right. There's something important, I think, about the fact that the only thing we know, before we really know anything about Moses, the only thing we know about Moses is that he's a shepherd, and that he's a shepherd to his father-in-law, who is a non-Jewish priest in Midian. in Midian. So the first thing, how many of you have ever shepherded sheep?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I've seen sheepdogs do it. You've I've
0: seen, seen sheepdogs sheep do it? Myself,
1: it? but I've, yeah, I've seen, yeah.
0: yeah. And what did that look like?
1: Um, It looked like the dog was working really hard, honestly. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: yeah, okay. Anybody else? They followed each other. They do follow each other, but they're not very good at following their leader. And in fact, the best way to drive sheep is to drive them from behind, right, to sort of uh, take up the rear and uh, and, and encourage uh, um, encourage the sheep in the back to uh, to lead their uh, fellow sheep forward. It also takes a tremendous amount of patience, right? Um, I mean, it's just, I, I tried for like a half an hour to tend sheep in a, you know, like a shepherding boot camp in Israel somewhere, <laughs> and um, uh, some people do gadna and train with the Israeli army, I train with Israeli sheep, so, um, although I had to tell you that, uh, that being a rabbi is sometimes more like, what's that? Probably better training for a rabbi. Maybe, although it would have been better training, and and Chazan can back me up on this, is uh, better than herding sheep is herding cats. It's more (laughs) like being a rabbi. I was just going
1: to offer that. Yeah, yeah. So it takes a tremendous amount of patience,
0: and um, it takes a tremendous amount of love. It's kind of like taking 25 first graders on a field. It's kind of like taking 25 first graders. You
1: have
0: to really care about the well-being of those sheep. You're intimately connected with uh, with with those sheep. Have you ever read the uh, the book The Alchemist? Anybody in, the, in here? So it's a great book. Paulo Coelho, I think, is uh, his name, who wrote it. It's a great book. Um, and the uh, the the um, main character in the book is a boy who starts off as a shepherd, and um, much of the first chapter talks about how much he loves his sheep. And I thought it was a really beautiful description. I'm sure uh, Coelho researched this a lot, about the kind of care and the kind of love that goes into shepherding sheep. And so here's where um, a a, a fantastic midrash, and a famous midrash, comes in to this text, right off the bat. So if you look on page two, (coughs) Exodus Rabbah goes like this. Our rabbis taught, once, while Moses, our teacher, was tending his father-in-law Yitro's sheep, One of the sheep ran away. Moses ran after it until it reached a small, shaded place. There the lamb came across a pool and began to drink. As Moses approached the lamb, he said, I did not know you ran away because you were thirsty. You are so exhausted. He then put the lamb on his shoulders and carried him back. The Holy One said, Since you tend the sheep of human beings with such overwhelming love, by your life I swear you shall be the shepherd of my sheep, Israel. I love that midrash. And if, in fact, if you saw the movie uh, *The Prince of Egypt*, they used that midrash um, uh, to introduce the burning bush scene in *The Prince of Egypt* too. If you go back and watch it, and that's what happens in *The Prince of Egypt*. Now, that's not in the biblical text itself, but you see how midrash does such a wonderful job of kind of filling in the white spaces. Of the Torah. We don't really know um, what the connection is between Moses shepherding sheep and Moses finding this burning bush. And the Torah, according to the rabbis, doesn't say anything unnecessarily. So there's a reason it's telling us that Moses is the shepherd. It's not just to provide us color for his life, there's something. Uh, there's important information we need to know about his shepherding, and it's drawing a causal connection between Moses shepherding and God selecting Moses as the leader of the people. By the way, I think that that text preserves the integrity of, um, of this story as maybe the first time we meet Moses, that God didn't uh, um, preconceive that Moses was going to be the leader of Israel. And it wasn't that Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace, or was this, you know, beautiful baby that was born um, in secret to Amram and Yochebed, and it wasn't that he struck down the Egyptian, right? None of that is really entertained in this midrash. What's relevant is Moses' compassion and Moses' love. And so what I want to say about that is it seems to me if we're talking about this text as a paradigm for divine encounter. One of the prerequisites for encountering God is loving other people and loving your fellow creatures. God appears to Moses at precisely the moment that Moses demonstrates his love for his sheep. That is, I think, a powerful idea. And you can read that as Um, as sort of, you know, as one kind of cause and effect, right? God saw it, was very happy about it, and so said, ah, okay, now I'm going to come down and see. Or you could read it another way, right? That Moses, that the burning bush was there the whole time, right? Moses could have seen it, but didn't see it until the um, bonds of love opened his eyes and enabled him to see the divine. I was in a uh, um, fraternity in college called A.E. P.I., and um, one of the um, central poems that we you know would look at in that in, in, in the fraternity is um, "I searched for God, but He eluded me." Um, sorry, can we rephrase that? I'm gonna, my brother, Master, is listening. Okay. So uh, no one could tell me where my soul might be. I searched for God, but He eluded me. I sought my brother and found all three. And perhaps that is what this text is saying.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, it's not just the burning bush. It's an angel.
0: In yeah, we haven't gotten to the bush yet. Do yeah, uh, <laughs> you want to hold the comment? Yeah, so we can, hold okay. all, the
1: all right, all right, all right so, now we're
0: at the, so now we're at the bush, okay? All right, so, okay, so here's the thing. All right. Uh, verse 2, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire out of a bush. He gazed, and there was a bush all aflame, yet the bush was not consumed. Okay, before you say your thing about the angel, I do want to point out, just to put the biblical scholar hat on again, um, many biblical scholars think that that angel part is an insertion into the text, that there's an additional biblical author who's sort of preoccupied with, with angels and, uh, and and thinks that it's um, there's, it brings continuity with other texts in the Torah, um, so puts the angel there, because you could read the verse totally without the angel, right? You could... So, just, just he, he was a shepherd, came to, he came to the mountain of God, he gazed, and there was a bush all aflame, right? That's all you need to know, right? The first part is sort of superfluous information. So he gazed, and there was a bush all aflame, yet the bush was not consumed.
1: Okay, Gary. Would he have looked if there hadn't been an angel there? And, and would he have gazed upon it the way he uh, did because there was an angel there? That is presumably the face of an angel or some something to tell him that there was a presence in that bush. Yes, although it's telling that he doesn't
0: make mention of the angel, right? He sees a bush, um, and the bush is not consumed, and then we'll see in verse 3, he says, I must turn aside to look at this marvelous sight, why doesn't the bush burn up, right? So he, he totally ignores the fact that there's an angel there, um, right, and I am sort of imagine you know um, like like someone who's the guy that like waves the flags on the on the runway at the airport right and he's doing it and like totally speeds by him right um, uh, that's one way of looking at it but okay so what's the there for then if he does see the angel like so
1: what well so so the angel becomes the draw I mean that that is the appearance actually in the Hebrew it's exactly the same word but you know, if you look at the ba- at vowel, mm-hmm. not the, without the vowels, Vayera and Vayar. Yeah. Okay? I mean, the angel appears and that <coughs> causes him to gaze across to this bush. It takes it from the uh, physical to the spiritual. Yeah. I mean, if I would come across the burning bush that was consumed, I would think, what is, the, what is the physical phenomenon that's making this happen? Yeah. But if an angel then appears, then I would know that, that it's something so, I don't know. I would hope that just a burning bush, a bush burning and not being consumed, would be enough to get someone. Yeah, but to I would think him. of it physically. What is the what, what is just uh, material? Yeah. Yeah. Why is that doing it? I would look at it from the scientific. So, <laughs> well, if I were in charge of sheep and there was a fire somewhere near my clock, I would be very attentive. Yeah. <laughs> <fine>. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a good point, right? Moses
0: is, is responsible for the safety of his flock, and if he sees a, a, a bush brush fire, danger, danger, right? Um, so let's, I mean, let's, maybe there's an angel there, maybe there's not, let's put it aside for a second and just uh, focus on, on that fact, right? Imagine you're Moses, and you see this burning bush. First of all, maybe you wouldn't even bother stopping to look at it. You'd say, oh my gosh, this is a bad place to take my flock. I'm just going to go clear the other direction. But Moses doesn't do that. He sees the bush on fire, and he stops to look at it. And then he realizes that the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. How much time do you think it takes Moses? From the second he sees the bush to the moment he realizes that the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. He doesn't just glance at it, right? Right, This is someone who looks closely, right? And that I I think is really relevant, really important, He could have just walked by, right? Maybe that's why the text wanted the angel there, because it wanted to say, like, he couldn't have walked by, right? There's the angel right there, right? But maybe, maybe he didn't. Maybe he could have totally missed the angel. if He didn't stop to look at the bush, and that's I think one of the realities of this text is that um, is that encounters with God require uh, patience and attention, right? Focus, um, time, right? And a lot of times um, we don't devote the uh, time and the focus and the attention that uh, that uh, that an encounter with uh, the divine. Calls for and requires, so we, you know, we uh, uh, we we come for our hour of synagogue week and say, you know, um, all right, I, fl- I, I read through all of the prayers in the prayer book in Hebrew or English or whatever. I read through all the prayers in the prayer book. Um, why? W- where was God, right? Why didn't I have an encounter with God? And um, and maybe the answer from this text is, you didn't pause enough. You didn't reflect enough, right? Uh, what did someone say about jazz? That uh, jazz is really the music between the notes, right? And in some ways, that's uh, God, too, at least according to this text, that, that God is the presence between the presence, right? That, uh, that we go through life, we see, we interact, we do, we do our daily routine, routine um, but we don't pause, we don't investigate, we don't, we, don't, we don't dig deep. So that's, I think, one of the um, sources of Moses' encounter here is the very fact that he paused. Do you have your, do you want to Okay. Why would this bush be in the middle
1: of nowhere on
0: fire? Yeah. Um, so that's one reason that maybe he wanted to look at it, right? This is a strange thing, that a bush in the middle of nowhere is on fire, although it does happen, right? You know, um, the sun's beating down uh, in a certain way on a bush, Right, and it catches fire, and how do brush fires start? Right, when they're not started by someone flicking a cigarette into the woods. Um, so, Moses, being a native in one way or another to the to the desert, um, probably would have seen these kind of fires before. Right, which actually makes it maybe even more impressive that he stopped to investigate, stopped to go look. Right, this was maybe even a routine phenomenon for him. Right, and and, and nevertheless he. Went to the bush and investigated a little bit more. Now the other level of looking at this. Sorry, I, I missed your. Yeah. I was going to say, God spoke to him from the bush as well, so both God
1: and the angel were in the bush. Or is
0: that a Yeah. So it, um, okay. So there's a there's some things that we need to know. The first I, first is I'm really sticking to my guns that I think that uh, another author added this angel business. Um, but in uh, I, I do as you know um, I have uh, I. I um, you know, not, anyway, um, <laughs> angels in the angels in the Bible aren't usually um, what we think of as you know um, semi divine beings with wings that you know sort of fly down. Um, oftentimes, when they're talked about in the Torah, um, what, what they, when they say a uh, malach adonai, they mean just a a, a, um, a manifestation of God, right? A, a, a permutation of God. So it's it's God's presence, but it's God's presence. Uh, more viscerally realized. Um,
1: messenger,
0: um, right? So the word malach means messenger, literally, and so. Um, but uh, but the way the way biblical mythology, I guess is the best way, but the way biblical mythology thinks of angels, at least in this context, when it says an angel of God means the presence of God, um, probably. Okay, but there's another level of looking at the story, not just the uh, the what we might call the pshat. Right? There's a bush that's on fire, and he stopped to look at it. Um, that, I think, gives us a, uh, an insight into spiritual encounter, but also um, what we might call drash, right? The midrashic reading of the text. So the first thing is, you know, the Torah could have chosen anything for Moses to see, right? Assuming that the Torah is not um, literally describing history here, Um which may be radical, uh, but let's say for a second it's not, right? And the Torah could have chosen anything for Moses to see, right? He could have seen a, uh, a three-eyed raven flying through the heavens, right? He could have seen um, a black sheep, right? And, and then he would have, uh, instead of saying, who am I to go to Pharaoh, he would have said, baba, ba, black sheep. Sorry, I have nursery rhymes, that's all I do. Um, right? He could have seen anything. Oh,
1: wait. wait, rhyme like baba, ba, black sheep, have you any war- wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir, three bush bushfuls.
0: Well, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. So um, keep working on it. though. Um,
1: eventually, you'll we'll get it. So,
0: right. um, so, uh, um, so the, the
1: the truth is, I think that the Torah is uh, is deliberately
0: using symbolism here. Okay. And so there's several layers of symbols. One is the symbol of the bush itself. One is the symbol of the flame, and one is the symbol of the bush being on fire but not being consumed. Okay, so let's look at um, a couple of commentaries on each of those. Okay, so look at number two on page two. Um, Nahum Sarna wrote a a really fantastic commentary on Exodus, a modern commentary. So he says, Fire is meant to convey this. Fire, because of its non-material, formless, mysterious, and luminous characteristics, is frequently used in descriptions of the external manifestations of the divine presence. Right, so Moses' encounter with the divine... Right, um, is what the Torah is. I think trying to tell us is that it's in a in a, in, in a certain sense a purely spiritual encounter. That uh, that he's not encountering God um, through an object. He's not encountering God uh, through an image. Right. He's not encountering God through a person uh, in the sense of you and I talking together. Right. Fire is the closest image that the Bible comes to to talking about. Um, the totally non material right um, which I think is important right uh, it was important to me um, first when I um, was in a period of my life where I was very kind of anti God and anti Judaism because I felt like um, it didn't um, um, it didn't jive with what I was learning about science right I had a teacher once that told me that uh, God put dinosaur fossils in the earth to test our fate right and um, and it wasn't until later um, that I that I realized that you can have God that, um, that accounts for the best of science in part because science itself is inherently limited. So science is restricted to the observable and the quantifiable. And so sometimes people who are scientifically minded take that statement about the method of science and interpret that as a statement about the values of our world or or the reality of our world, that not only can you only do science with the observable and quantifiable, but you also, all there is, is the observable and quantifiable. Right? And that is um, a faith statement on, uh, on account of uh, some people, in, um, in not only in the scientific community, the philosophical community, and other communities, that all there is is what can be observed and what can be quantified. Um, I mean, not for nothing, but uh, physicists believe that a large majority of our universe is comprised of things that they have no clue what it is and can't see it and study it and measure it right? Uh, dark energy and dark matter. Um, but putting that aside for a second, right? Um, there is a lot more to our world, to our reality, to our universe than what can be seen and what can be counted, right? Even on a microscopic or submicroscopic level. Um, so the, the the image of fire, I think, is an apt one um, because it, it symbolizes uh, not that that what ex- that... Um, what you can see and touch and hold isn't all that exists. Right? That there are things in our world that can't be held, can't be counted. Fire, of course, can be seen, um, but it's the closest, like I said, that the Bible can come to to describing something that is uh, that is materially visible, but, but not material. Okay, but here's I think another uh, commentary that I that I love about um, about this burning bush. So this is a Hasidic commentary. If you remember from last week, we talked a lot about um, uh, Hasidic commentaries. Uh, and this one is from Noam Elimelech. He says, an angel of God appeared to him in flaming fire. This one I love because of what we learn about Moses in uh, chapter 2 of Exodus before we get to this story. The evil urge is also called an angel or messenger of God. It shows itself to the righteous person, all wrapped in fiery enthusiasm, as though fully transformed into goodness. Okay? So, think back, if you can, to um, chapter 2 of Exodus, where Moses grows up, and he goes out among the uh, other Israelites and sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, a Hebrew slave. What does he do? Right. The text says he looks this way and that and sees that no one's around, and so he strikes down the Egyptian and kills him, buries him in the sand, then later he goes and talks to a couple of Israelites and realizes that it's become public knowledge that he's killed an Egyptian, so flees to the wilderness. One of Moses' defining characteristics, and you see this happening later in the Torah too, is that despite his humility, which he's described as having in a few places, and despite his um, uh, lack of ability to speak, which we learned about in a few places. He has, you could call it passion. I might call it a temper, right? And that's precisely the reason that he gets banned from entering the land of Israel. Is um, is in part, at least, on account of his his temper, which we read about in the book of Numbers just a few weeks ago, right? And so here, maybe God is using, or the Torah is using, the symbol. Not necessarily to talk about a spiritual reality in the world, but something inside Moses. Right? Moses, you aren't going to be the leader that I need you to be unless you can tell the difference between passion and temper, right? Between between enthusiasm for doing good and enthusiasm that makes you think you're doing good but is actually leading you astray, leading you in another direction. That's something that a lot of us, I think, and certainly for me, um, uh, struggle with our whole lives. Sometimes the very thing that makes us really good in one area of our lives is exactly what's hold, what holds us back in other areas of our lives. Right? I, I, I see some heads nodding because I think that this is a, a, a deep truth. Um, and so maybe this image is used because what God is showing Moses is Your fire could be used for positive or it could be used for negative, right? The passion is good, but you need to channel it in the right way. You need to know when it's leading you astray, when it's leading you in the right direction, something that Moses sometimes learned but ultimately didn't. But he looked and saw that the bush was burning in fire. Even though you see that evil urge all dressed up in passion for the service of God, know that the bush is not consumed. Watch out for it until your dying day. Right. Even though that evil inclination is, is is wrapped up, it says, "You know, lash out, you know, unleash your anger, young Skywalker. Right? It's the it's the only way you will destroy me. Right? Don't do it because that's the path to the dark side. Right? Um, another Star Wars reference. Yeah. Or, okay. So, um, so it could be that God is using this symbol precisely to target Moses, to target Moses' soul. I think I want you to be my leader, but in order to be the leader, you need to know this about yourself, right? And part of leadership is knowing of how our good qualities can be utilized positively and how those same good qualities actually can hold us back, okay? Let's look at a couple more here. So it says, Exodus number four, it says in Isaiah 63 9, in all their troubles he was troubled. The Holy Blessing One said to Moses, If you want to know whether I am mired in pain, just as Israel is mired in pain, you should learn from the place from which I am speaking to you. From among the thorns, as it were, I am a partner in their suffering. So that's a powerful lesson. Using this imagery that God is giving, first of all, the snè, the bush that we're talking about, isn't like this nice holly bush, right? It's probably a little like thorny thicket that uh, that exists in the in the wilderness, right? So God's speaking to Moses from a thorn bush, right? And so this midrash supposes that
1: the that the imagery
0: is to is to tell Moses that uh, that God is an active participant in the suffering of the Israelites. Not an active cause of the suffering of the Israelites, but an empathetic participant in the suffering of the Israelites. That no place, and especially no place of pain and injustice and suffering is devoid of God. that God is with them in all of their troubles. So Moses then could come back, because if if the image was that Moses could say, okay, God, if you care so much, then why don't you just do it yourself? right? Why aren't you there? And God says back to Moses, I'm as, I'm as pained at their slavery as they are. I need you to help me. Right? This is not an image of an all powerful God. Right? This is an image of a deeply vulnerable God who's in
1: pain when we're in pain.
0: Which, by the way, is um, uh, perhaps another where, place that, uh, that, that we encounter um, the divine. Uh, maybe we wouldn't like to encounter the divine this way, but um, it was God present with us in the hospital room or in hospice or in times of tragedy. And I think that this text is saying that's precisely where God is. God isn't the cause of it. But God is there. That
1: might be applied to the present problems in yeah,
0: Israel. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. the think that was
0: a good people. Right, and the book—it's important to know that book by Harold Kushner is not why do bad things happen to good people. It's when bad things happen to good people, right? And when bad things happen to good people, God's presence is there to help us out of it. But God isn't the source of it. God isn't the cause, right? Okay, look at number five: Why, from a bush, to teach you that no place is free of the divine presence, even a bush? No place is free of the divine presence, even a bush, right? This goes back to um, the, the idea that we were talking about that that. To so go and look at this burning bush requires attention and care and closeness, right? But Moses' encounter with the divine shows him that God is everywhere. Okay, we'll come back to that idea. Another interpretation, out of a bush. Why did the holy blessing want to appear to Moses in this way? Because he would have thought in his heart and said, perhaps the Egyptians will destroy Israel. Therefore, the holy blessing one appeared to Moses as a flaming fire that did not consume. Okay, so here's why the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. God said to him, just as the bush is all aflame and is not consumed, so too the Egyptians will not be able to destroy Israel. Right? Moses, your mission is not a vain one. Right? And that's something that all of us in our lives, and especially if we're leaders, need to be reminded of. Right? That, uh, that we're not toiling in, in vain. In synagogue life, a lot of times, you know, um, uh, people are led to, to feel this way because, you know, you, uh, you you like constantly find yourself in the same situation five years down the road that you were in, you know, five years before. You're cycling, uh, you know, uh, same leaders, similar situations, etc. cetera, right? Um, and so here is the message God gives, right? There is not an inevitability to the suffering, right? And that's true in causes of justice in our world, too, right? It's not that war is inevitable and will always happen. It's not that poverty is inevitable and will always happen, or homelessness, or whatever kind of injustice you want to find, right? Um, That we have a capacity to actually help impact change. Okay. All right, let's go on a little bit more. We are a partner with God. We are a partner with God, exactly. So, um, verse 4, When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he answered, Here I am. And he said, Do not come closer. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. So that's an interesting part of the passage, right? That uh, Moses is called to uh, take off his shoes. The, uh, God acknowledges the place is holy ground. And a question arises among the commentators is the place holy ground, and that's why God speaks to Moses there? or is the place holy ground because God is speaking to Moses there? you understand the the question? So, most commentators err on the second side. That the place is holy ground because that's where God chooses to speak to Moses. We don't have inherently sacred space in the Jewish tradition. Space is made sacred because of what happens there, right? Um, So, any room can be a synagogue, right? You don't need to have a it's, you don't need to have a church in a certain set, right? Any room can be a synagogue um, if you have ten people and the willingness to pray, right? So look at what Brad Artson says, number 8, so on page 3. In commenting on the words holy ground, Sadja, who's a 9th a, a, um, a century uh, sage, explains that the phrase means made holy. The sanctity of that site derives from what God and Moses do there, not from the nature of the place itself. Moses stood on sacred soil because, in that context, he was in the presence of God and he knew it. We, too, stand in a sacred place any time we are aware of the lofty potential of that moment and of all moments. Right? So, if you remember from last week, I made mention of this uh, famous Hasidic phrase, uh, where, uh, uh, where is God? Wherever we let God in. Right? And that is, I think, a, a spiritual insight that Moses has in this encounter is um, God says, "Take off your shoes." The place where you stand is holy ground. It's not the place that was always holy ground. The place is holy because there's an encounter between Moses and God. That means any place is pregnant with the possibility of an encounter with the divine. And I love what Rabbi Orson does with this next. Perhaps that is the ultimate mission of the Jew: to transform every moment into a sacred moment and every place into a sacred place. Then, in a world of ritual profundity, ethical rigor, and social justice. We too will remove our shoes in reverence. Right? The way we Jews bring God in the world and have these moments make sacred spaces by doing sacred things. Right? And sacred things does only refer to praying and waving our love and etro and reading Torah. It does mean that. But it also means um, caring for the sick and the elderly and the disadvantaged and fighting for justice and uh, and, and working to eradicate poverty and fighting for peace. Okay. Let's look a little bit more. Verse 6. I am, he said, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I just want to linger there for a second, because it goes back to what, uh, what Michael was saying before about who Moses was. I'm not, I'm not so convinced that Moses grew up thinking he was an Egyptian. Despite what uh, you know, the Ten Commandments uh, uh, has right. Charlton Heston has this like revelation that maybe he's not an Egyptian, right? And same with the Prince of Egypt, right? Uh, um, uh, Val Kilmer's Moses uh, realizes that he's not actually an Egyptian. I th- I get that that's a plausible read of what happens in the first, uh, in the second chapter of Exodus. But you also have all this evidence that Pharaoh's daughter knew from the onset that he was a Hebrew raised him with uh, his Hebrew mother and, uh, and, and Hebrew upbringing, when he goes out uh, in that scene, that fateful scene where he strikes the Egyptian, the text says he went out among his brothers, his kinfolk, to see their suffering. Now, it could be that that's just the omniscient narrator saying, well, I know something about Moses that Moses doesn't know about Moses. Or it could actually be internal to Moses, right? Moses went outside the palace walls specifically to see what was happening with the Hebrews because he knew they were his kin, right? Look at what Aviva Zornberg says. Moses, at uh, number eight, Moses leaves his birth mother, his, his, the nursing breast, and moves to the princess's palace. Moses later leaves that palace and is able, strangely, to recognize and brutalize slaves outside his own brother's. So I'm thinking about this when God uses the phrase. God could have just said, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But God says, I am the God of your father. Right? There's something about Moses that Moses is aware of. Right? Because otherwise that would have had no meaning to him. Right? If, if God introduced, I'm the God of your father, right, that would have had no meaning to Moses if, if Moses didn't have awareness of who his father was and who his father's God was. He may not have a personal connection with that God yet. Right? But, um, thank you. Uh, but, um, but, but But it strikes me that, uh, that God is speaking specifically to um, Moses' internal state, right? which I think suggests that no matter how far we are removed from um, our Jewish past, no matter how we, far we are removed from um, our parents' Judaism or grandparents' Judaism, um, God always can call to us back from that place. That there, that 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 those memories that that kernel still exists inside of us, right? And it can be accessed and called upon. So when God calls Moses here, God doesn't say, "I am your God." God doesn't start with, "I'm God of Abraham, ancestors distant." God says, "I'm God of your father." Right? This is personal. This is about you. This is about who. You are Moses. Zornberg goes on saying, He saw their sufferings, what they had to bear, the weight of their existence. Rashi comments, he gave his eyes and his heart to be distressed over them. Moses seeing is Moses allowing himself to be affected, to suffer with those who are unexpectedly called his brothers. Even though I don't think it's unexpected, I think Moses knew they were his brothers. It is on the basis of that vulnerable empathy that he then sees the Egyptian taskmaster battering one of his brothers. Sees, that is, the axis of difference now running between those who inflict cruelty and those who suffer it. In God trying to identify Moses by Moses' father, God also links Moses to the brothers that Moses saw being beaten by the Egyptians. Moses felt that visceral connection But God makes it concrete. God says, these are your brothers who are being beaten, brutalized, and enslaved. You saw it with your own eyes. And seeing needs to generate compassion and empathy and a passion for justice. And that's an important point. We'll come to that uh, maybe in a few minutes. that, uh, That there's a link drawn between seeing injustice and acting on injustice, which means that um, we are, I think, invited to put ourselves in situations where we can see injustice happening, right? We're at least told that you can't turn a blind eye, right? The Bible later says, (laughs) lo you can't turn away when you see injustice happening, right? Which also means we can't cordon ourselves off in communities and neighborhoods and societies where where there's no uh, where there's no uh, uh, suffering, where there's no poor, where there's no conflict, where there, right? we need to actually go out to the places where there's suffering to to see it, to feel that uh, connection.
1: Yeah. i was just going to say when when, the, uh, when he killed that uh, fellow, uh, it was almost like his fellow Jews kind of or Israelites pushed him out. He wasn't one of them. They thought he was different, so he kind of felt like he wasn't part of the group. Yeah. And I'm so, sure his whole all the stories you heard growing up were so abstract. And yeah, you knew he was. yeah. You didn't feel it, didn't see it. It's kind of like when kids go to work all of a sudden, they get it sometimes. Yeah, they, they hear the stories, but now they get it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I mean, the the, the um, you know one one thing that's interesting about that encounter is that um, the Israelites don't say to him, you know, what business is it of yours? You're not a Hebrew. They say to him, um, um, well, they say to him, what they say to him is actually a little bit um, complex, but It seems like they say to him, it's not that you have no business because you're not a Hebrew, but that you're not in charge of us, right? In some ways, it's because you're neither Hebrew nor Egyptian in our eyes, right? Um, Who made you lord and master over us, right? If you were a Hebrew, maybe it would be your business. If you were really an Egyptian royalty, then you would be lord and master over us, right? But they say, uh, what made you lord and master over us? And, um, uh, And then they say, do you intend to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? So first of all... Like, you killed that Egyptian sounds like um, they're not identifying Moses as an Egyptian because they identify the Egyptian as an other. But the other is that it sounds to me like they're afraid of Moses. Right? Moses has a has a rage problem, right? And uh, um, um, Which goes back to the Noam Ali Malach's uh, issue. Okay. Let's go on a little bit more. And the Lord continued... Verse 7. I have marked well the plight of my people in Egypt, and I have heeded their outcry because of their taskmasters. Yes, I am mindful of their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and bring them out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the region of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The mosquito bites. The, <laughs> uh, the stalactites. The stalagmites. Now the... Now, <clears throat> Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. Moreover, I have seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you shall free my people, the Israelites, from Egypt. There's a a verse, end of chapter 2, right before chapter 3 begins, where it says that the Israelites were were, uh, groaning under the weight of their oppression. They cried out to God. God heard the cry of the Israelites, and then God knew and God remembered. It's, it's a it's a strange thing. We talk about it in the in the Passover Haggadah, too, that um, that it seems like God doesn't really know what's going on until the Israelites cry out. But as soon as the Israelites cry out, God swoops into action, right? And that if you relate it back to what we just said about Moses and um, and and what. Uh, maybe qualified Moses uh, as, as a leader in the eyes of God, or maybe what we'll qualified him as a leader in his own heart, right? God echoes that same quality, right? You act when you hear the cries of somebody oppressed, and so do I, right? We are peas in a pod about this, right? So look at what Arya Cohen says. I love this. God articulates the explicit causality between being attentive to, to hearing the cries of the oppressed and doing something about it, acting on it. On the one hand, God heard the cry of the Israelites, and this led to redemption. On the other hand, Pharaoh did not hear the cry, and this led to the devastation of Egypt. The ethical choice is between imitatio dei, being like God, and imitatio paro, being like Pharaoh. As is the want of the biblical authors, these choices bring with them repercussions. Choosing to be like God leads to to redemption, while choosing to be like Pharaoh leads to death. You can choose to be like God and hear the cries of the oppressed, or you can choose to be like Pharaoh and ignore those cries. So when God says, I've heard the cries of the people in Egypt, and I'm going to come to save them," what Moses is saying is that we have an ethical choice. When we hear the cries and the outcries of the people who are oppressed and
1: suffering, do we go about our daily lives or are our business? Moses could have kept on being
0: a shepherd, right? Or do you actually do something about it? That's the I think central question of Exodus. Okay, and now um, let's look at the final passage. But Moses said to God, "Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt?" And He said, "I will be with you." That shall be your sign that it was I who sent you. And when you have freed the people from Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Okay. So the first thing is, you notice that Moses objects, right? He says, I'm not the guy for the job. But he asks, uh, um, he says two things. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? And who am I to take the uh, children of Israel out of Egypt? So the commentators talk about that as, as two different questions. Um, so look at what Aviva Zornberg says, number 11, this is a moment of extraordinary tension, of unprecedented tonality. In the biblical record of human relations with God, this most humble of men upon the face of the earth flatly contradicts God's scenario for the future. So convinced is he of his own and his people's inadequacy, his to make himself heard, theirs to respond to such a message, that he simply contradicts God's version of the future. Now look at the next thing Zornberg says. Rashi's comment, Rashi says that, there's, that there are two um, complaints that Moses makes here, objections he makes here. Um, Rashi's comment increases complexity. Uh, oh, sorry, never mind. Don't look at that one yet. Or not that one. All right, so, um, all right, so but here's, here's what Zornberg says about uh, what Moses is, uh, is, is doing here. Right? Moses is reluctant because not only does he not believe in himself, Right? He doesn't believe in the people either right he sees who am I to lead the people out of Egypt right I'm not qualified to do it and who am I to free the Israelites from Egypt Rashi understands that phrase free the Israelites from Egypt as him saying they're not worthy of being free so this is an issue that plagues Moses throughout his leadership it's the thing one of the other things that uh, led to his ultimate uh, being ultimately being um, excluded from the land of Israel um, he Um, has a tendency to have a lack of faith in the people who he's leading, right? He has trust problems, right? He doesn't believe that they're worthy of redemption. And indeed, um, many of the commentators say that the Israelites weren't worthy of redemption, that God comes down to save the Israelites precisely before they're worthy because of God's love for the Israelites. So God here is trying to make a statement to Moses about love. And Moses is trying to make a statement back to God about trust, Right? And God, ultimately, as we know, wins out in this argument. And what God's winning out means is that is that love, right, that um, that taking care of somebody, even if they don't deserve it, takes precedence over the justice of whether or not it's their time.
1: Right?
0: And what happens with Moses here is that uh, um, Moses shows that... Um, uh, uh, by saying, whom I to go to Pharaoh, I think he actually shows precisely why he is the person to go to Pharaoh. So look what Lawrence Kushner says. God does give Moses a sign. Right, so this is uh, um, uh, operating from the strange answer that God gives uh, to Moses. God, Moses says, whom I to go to Pharaoh, uh, and God doesn't really answer that question. God says, I will be with you, and this shall be your sign. All right? But doesn't really give him um, an actual sign. So that's a question that the commentaries uh, ask and the Hasidic tradition asks. God does give Moses a sign, says the Berdichever, that's uh, Reb Levi talk of Berdichev, and it has been right there in plain sight all along, we just didn't notice it. From his native humility, Moses cannot imagine he is worthy of such a holy task. That's why he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? But precisely this fear of inadequacy is the source of his true spiritual authority. It's not an expression of unworthiness. It's a necessary qualification and precondition for the job of any would-be Jewish leader. Your fear that you are unworthy makes you worthy. God, in effect, says to Moses, Dummy, your asking, Who am I? Is the sign that I have sent you. But so often... Leaders have an inflated sense of their own capabilities and their own importance, and very often those same leaders are the ones who end up in, you know, federal court and. In, uh, in, in <laughs> You're not talking
1: about
0: I'm Not talking about anybody specific. I'm just, you know, saying that in theory one could find themselves there if they were that kind of leader. So, uh, right. So what Moses demonstrates here. What, What's that? Sometimes they elections. Sometimes they do. Um, uh, yes. So anyway, um, moving off of uh, current events for a second. Um, right. Moses asked this question. It's, a, it's an audacious question. Um, but it is exactly why Moses is the right guy to be a leader. It's because he doesn't fully trust himself to do a good job. Right? He... Knows that there are answers that he needs that exist outside of himself, right? That he has um, that he has hurdles left to cl- to, to uh, overcome um, uh, in his own leadership development. That he has foibles and flaws and uh, and uh, and disabilities that he has to overcome. He knows that he's a deeply flawed choice by God to be leader. And nevertheless. Right? That's who God chose. And um, as and much as we said last week, right, there's that great story, and I'll say it again because I think it's just such a beautiful uh, story. Right? Uh, um, a person is um, on a, uh, a visit to India and sees all of the horrible urban poverty um, in the cities of India and uh, cries one night in a hotel room to God and says, God, why don't you send somebody to save these people? And God says, I did send somebody. I sent you. Right? Because in a way, we're all like Moses. Right. Um, I think we all, um, if we're on, if we're honest with ourselves, have a, a sense of our um, of our uh, of our inabilities, our insecurities. Right. And often those insecurities are what hold us back. But what's interesting about this text is that God meets Mo- Moses precisely in that moment of insecurity. Right? Moses, the encounter with God is where Moses is able to admit, "I don't think I'm the right person to do this." Right. And I think that that's true for us. That, um, that 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 uh, that spiritual connection, spiritual insight, only comes when we're willing to say, you know, actually, maybe I'm not the person. Right? Maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I need to learn more. Maybe there's someone better, right? Because when we when we when, when there's too much ego, there's no room for God to come in, right? So that's precisely what happens to Moses here. Okay, and just. Just two more minutes uh, to, to get to the, to the end of this uh, text, okay? And this is the end of this text, um, not because it's the end of the chapter, uh, but because, according to the biblical scholars, um, uh, this is probably where the uh, original text ended, okay? So Moses then challenges God again, right? Uh, and by the way, just the, one of God's responses to Moses echoes what we said before, right? I will be with you, right? In times of trouble, in times of pain, that's... Uh, where we most need God, and I think that that's where God is most successful. God says, God says, I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not going to take you by the hand, right? I'm not going to push you, right? But know that you have me by your side. Okay, and then at the end, Moses said to God, when I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh which is sometimes translated as, I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. Um, there's probably not going to be any consensus ever about what exactly that means, and I think it's deliberately meant to be vague. It's some kind of um, conjugation of God's uh, uh, formal name, yud heh vav uh, which is itself a conjugation of past, present, and or future. Um, so, eye, Asher, a I think I lean on the side that it means I will be what I will be, uh, but it might mean I am that I am, and I want to give you two um, possible interpretations of, uh, of, of each of those. Okay? So, so Zornberg and Kushner, I think, are on the same vein. Okay? So Rashi's comment incre- increases complexity. I shall be with them in this anguish, and I shall be with them in future crises of slavery. On this reading, God defines himself as the God of continual redemption. Implicitly, catastrophically, God intimates that Jewish history will be one of continual crises. There will be other slaveries, other redemptions. Maharal, another commentator, takes the inner logic of God's self-naming a stage further. God's being, God's being is a being with. I shall be with you. It will always respond to the need of the human, to the specific quality of the human cry. It changes constantly as human beings find and lose relationship with him. The human experience of redemption, then, will be episodic. It will remain a problematic existential desire. Right? So God's statement of who God is at this moment is saying that, like we said, right, holiness isn't intrinsic to the place, it's where man and God meet. And man and God, or women and God, can meet anywhere. Right? Um, that, um, that I'm not the cause of Israelite suffering in Egypt, but I'm with them in suffering, and I will continue to be with them in suffering. And the divine response to being in suffering is and hearing suffering is to do something about it. Right? So that's what Zornberg's saying. There, this is the process of godliness that God's hinting at here. That um, that, that God is present where we meet God, right? He is with us when we need God, and Um, and calls us to act like God where there is no God, right? And it's ongoing, right? It doesn't just happen once. It happens always. So what is happening with Moses isn't a historical story. It's happening in our hearts right now. And Kushner says this, but that name does not, as it's frequently mistranslated, mean I am that I am. Okay, so he feels very strongly it doesn't mean that. That is static in present tense, and ehyeh is clearly future. "Ehya" means, in effect, I will be, and alludes to an unfinished future, and what might only be attained then. Indeed, a cumbersome but accurate translation of "ehya asher ehyeh would be, I am not yet who I am not yet. Which means, therefore, that if God is not done yet, then neither are we. That, I think, was, um, when, when I discovered that, way of interpreting this text, it was a revelation to me about what God could be in my life. Because God isn't this, uh, this static truth claim. God is an, an, an ongoing and changing and evolving part of my life, and as I grow, God changes and grows too, right? God isn't yet what God isn't yet, and neither am I, right? So I become what I'm becoming, God also becomes what God is becoming, and we are um, uh, doing this together. God is changing, and I'm changing, and I help change God, and God helps change me. But here's another way of looking at it, and we'll end with this. Here's what Sforno says, a uh, medieval uh, um, uh, uh, Italian commentator. The present tense is focused on the thing itself. Okay, so Sforno thinks that it means I am what I am, right? It's present tense. But here's how he interprets what it means. The present tense is focused on the thing itself, meaning that God is... Um, it, God is, God is isness, right? Um, and so God is presence, God is um, the thing itself, God is all of reality. From this, it follows that God is compelled to love existence and to hate loss that contradicts existence, right? If God is everything, then God must love everything that exists and hate things that take things out of existence. And it follows further that God is compelled to love law and justice which are the foundation of existence, and to hate crookedness and cruelty. And because of this, God hated the violence and cruelty of the Egyptians against the Israelites. Right? So if you like better the interpretation of ehyeh asher ehyeh, that God is what God is, right? I am what I am, then I think Sforno's comment is brilliant and beautiful. Because at the core of what God is calling Moses to is an awareness of, um, of what it means to be human in God's world, right? That we have a responsibility to um, enhance existence, to make sure that things aren't destroyed or lost from existence. And that means upholding law and justice and fighting for causes of justice because if we don't, we diminish, as it were, God. So the encounter that Moses has with God is, in, in a sense, an encounter with himself and in a sense, a counter with uh, his uh, relationship with all of his uh, brothers and sisters, and also, in a sense, a, an encounter with all of the rest of creation. Because right? Moses sees here that he is not an isolated part of, um, of, of, of existence. Right? We are not um, individualized entities. We're not um, uh, 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 static actors. Right? We are part of all that is, and, and because we're part of all that is, it means we have a responsibility to uphold and strengthen all that is. And the only way to do that is to uh, hate crookedness and cruelty and violence and to love law and justice and compassion and peace. So I think that that's the message that God leaves with here. That's God's identity that God shows Moses, and that to me spoke very uh, powerfully in in my life, that what it means to be somebody who encounters God and experiences experiences God in the world is to be somebody who um, who cares about the suffering of uh, of, of, uh, of of the poor and the marginalized and the underprivileged, and to work to make sure that
1: injustice is eradicated.